today truly is a joint uh, venture because if you'll notice in your um, in your notes that Mark actually wrote the notes because uh, uh, we had talked a few weeks back about uh, me possibly filling in for him because he had uh, this crazy schedule and this graduation and uh, I said no problem I'm always I just love to come here I mean I just absolutely love I look forward to, for weeks to come and uh, be with you guys. And, uh, but as it drew closer, I realized once again that it was kind of like taking a drink out of a fire hydrant, you know, because I realized, wait a minute, I remember where the standard is and what kind of a document he turns out. And to be honest with you, the week after next, I'm going to be going up for my last seminar up at Kansas City. And I've got so much reading and so much, uh, so many papers to write before then. I finally called, I told Lewis, I said, Lewis, I got to bounce this off of you first. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this lesson. He said, well, you need to call Mark as soon as possible. So I called Mark and I said, Mark, I got a problem. Yeah, well, hey, we need to meet. You know how Mark is, you know. Yeah, we need to meet because we need to go over that lesson, what you're going to be doing. I said, well, that's kind of part of the problem. Oh, no, we can meet probably at the beginning of the week. I said, no, no, that's not the problem. We can meet. The problem is I don't know that I'm going to be able to do it. Okay, well, he said, well, what's the problem? I said, I just don't think I can produce the document. Uh, this time. And uh, he said, no problem. I'll get that done. You just uh, take it and then you kind of teach it and then kind of make it your own. And I said, all right. And he had this to me Monday. And of course, once again, with some contributing editorial comments and all from your own Dale Hearn and several others, you know, he got it off the presses. And uh, that's what you have in your hand today. And so he did all the hard work. And then I took that and then he's left me some latitude in there. So today, and I know there's no uh, picture up there because, you know, it's like, wait a minute. Now, there's no computer up there. There's no PowerPoint. But, you know, as I thought about this, uh, I just have a little bit different PowerPoint today because the document that he always produces is so powerful. I felt that I just might point to that uh, today. (laughs) So don't anybody leave here and say he didn't have a PowerPoint, okay? Uh, plus, his PowerPoints are just like on a whole new level. And so, you know, once again. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do it a little bit differently uh, this time. You really are going to use your outline. You're going to use that a lot because I'm going to refer to it a lot. And uh, we're not going to read it all. But I'm definitely going to go to key uh, paragraphs, key lines in here as we talk about this, as we move our way through this. The other thing, too, is I'm going to reference the Baptist faith and message. And for some of you, you might say, what on earth is the Baptist faith and message? Well, believe it or not, it's kind of a confession uh, of a Southern Baptist. And I'll refer to that in just a few minutes. And the third item that, uh, you know, we're going to refer to a lot is your Bible. So if you have your Bibles or if somebody beside you has a Bible, we're going to be looking at several scripture references today uh, in the Bible. And uh, that was part of the process I was working through about uh, putting together a PowerPoint. You know, we could put, I could put James the first up there. I could put Charles. I could put, uh, uh, William Laud, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury that we're going to look at in just a few minutes. And, uh, I could put some of these images on there and then I could say, oh, and now here's all the key scriptures that we're going to be looking at. But again, I just wasn't real satisfied with that. And so I decided, you know what? Let's just go ahead and use our own Bibles and open up the Bibles and, uh, we'll be, uh, referring to some of those things. So, anyways. So, uh, let's look at the historical context. Once again, we are looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
And I am at a slight disadvantage, and I don't want to be repeating things that have been discussed in previous uh, lessons. But uh, uh, and, and there's several cues through here as I was reading through and working through the notes where Mark says, you know, that was discussed in uh, lesson number 60 or lesson number 62 or so forth. And so I know that you'll be able to have a better idea of some of the things that were discussed uh, uh, than, than I will. Now, from what I understand, though, is you all kind of covered the whole issue of uh, predestination and so forth last week. Is that right? Kind of flew through that. You got another dose of it today. And, uh, you know, we'll probably touch on that a little bit, but, but we're not going to go back and, and, and redo all that. So we are, uh, once again, going to work off of, uh, off of uh, Mark's notes with a few little uh, uh, added things in, uh, that, that I'll bring. Let's go ahead and open with prayer. Father, we just thank you for this day. I just thank you for everybody who's come here to study your word, Lord. We just thank you for your word. We know that it's what molds us or what you use to mold us and to change us and to conform us to the image of Jesus. And that's what we want, Lord. We don't want to just come in here and just uh, study just to gain knowledge. We, Lord, want to gain knowledge in order that it may be used in our lives in a very practical way to transform us and to shine forth the light in the dark world. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding today. I pray, Lord, that you will help me to communicate clearly what you want communicated. And, Lord, we do pray for the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, in the first paragraph, you'll notice a little historical background, and that is that there was uh, some uh, interesting times going on in England uh, to kind of set the stage for the Westminster Confession. Back and forth, England was going towards Catholicism and then towards Calvinism and then towards Catholicism because of, obviously, John Calvin... Uh, uh, being very influential character over in Geneva, uh, English people coming over when the persecution would sometimes get a little heated, they would go and they would study under uh, Calvin. And so they were being influenced by this uh, Calvinism. And you see there that uh, so it was going back and forth in England at this time, which was making it kind of difficult for a lot of folks. Catholics also had a difficult time. Whenever it would be moving towards uh, the the uh, uh, Calvinistic approach, and of course uh, you'll see later on in the document that the majority of Parliament was heavily Calvinistic. Uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with the Catholics. They wanted to persecute the Catholics. And so it was really uncomfortable for anybody at that at that time in England. You see down there the last sentence of the paragraph, or the la second last sentence. English Protestants moved to Geneva to live, study, and worship. Geneva, of course, was the center of Calvin's influence and teaching. Once these Protestants were freed to return to England, they came with strong Calvinistic precepts and beliefs. And the next paragraph, you'll see that an influential character from Scotland was John Knox. In fact, uh, you know, uh, some of you may know uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy. Uh, down in Coral Gables, Florida. Uh, he, several years ago, started a seminary, and it's called John Knox Seminary, or Knox Seminary, uh, because Knox, and, of course, uh, Dr. Kennedy being Presbyterian, that shows a little bit of his roots going back. John Knox from Scotland went to study at the feet of uh, John Calvin, came back to Scotland, and was very instrumental in establishing the Presbyterian Church 
in Scotland, which was Calvinistic. So, as you'll see there, Mark says in his notes that you've got now England, England proper, that's caught between two worlds. It's caught between the world of Roman Catholicism and it's caught between uh, there and the other world of that is heavy and staunch Calvinism in Scotland. And so that's why you have on both sides this swaying back and forth as time goes on, the 1500s into the 1600s, going back and forth. And that is going to be uh, key in setting the stage for the Westminster Confession. In England proper during the 1500s, 1600s, you see there in that final paragraph, hardcore Calvinists. You, apparently you studied those. You studied in five or three lessons, 58, 59, and 64. You spent a lot of time on the Calvinists, huh? So I won't raise, do what? The debate. The debate, yeah. So do we have anybody in here that uh, switched sides? No, just kidding. I don't, want to, I don't want you to raise your hand, okay? So we, won't, we don't want to point out the Arminians and the Calvinists in the, in the room here. We really don't want to get into the Presbyterians and Catholics either, okay? So uh, we'll just uh, stick with that. But what were those Calvinists that were very, very diligent, very disciplined in their personal lives, what were they called? Next page. The Puritans. That's right. That uh, term rings a bell, right? The Puritans. The Puritans were the ones that came to the United States. Uh, Puritans because it, it was uh, a characteristic or it was de- descriptive of their life. They lived separate lives and holy lives. So there in the last part it says, Many eschewed Christmas and Easter as Catholic holidays or holy days which had no reference point in Scripture. So they were very, very bound to Scripture, the Word of God. Now, as you talk a little bit about James, uh, it, as you read uh, Mark's notes there, some of you may have known some of these things about uh, King James. Uh, of course, to his credit, uh, he was the one that um, issued the call to produce a Bible, another Bible in English, which we call the Authorized Version or the King James Version of 1611. Uh, so, uh, and no doubt, uh, and there's people that, probably not the 1611 because it went through uh, many revisions, but uh, there are people that, that prefer the King James Bible. It has stood the test of time. Beautiful language. Uh, sometimes for our modern uh, uh, world, a little bit difficult sometimes to understand because of the archaic works that, uh, words that it uses. But still, it has stood the test of time. It, it was a, a phenomenal accomplishment by eminent scholars of that day. However, James's personal life uh, obviously presented a lot of problems for him obviously being the, uh, the head of the church, the Church of England. And uh, he, uh, many accused him of trying to move them along with his son Charles, who followed him when he died, uh, moving kind of back towards Catholicism. He appointed uh, William Laud, Archbishop uh, of Canterbury, uh, who had a tremendous uh, uh, distaste for Calvinists, hardcore Calvinists. So he tried to, as you've got this uh, Anglican church uh, that has all these different strains within it, he's trying to move it back towards more Arminian and away from the Calvinistic perspective. So you have not only all these issues that are going on uh, theologically and uh, in, in spiritually, but you also have these issues politically. And what's so interesting about this is that they were so interconnected that you almost couldn't figure out where one stopped and another one began. 
And, and you know, just kind of a little side note here, a little caveat. I don't think you can do it any other way, to be honest with you. I mean, we try, especially here in the United States, you know, we have the quote-unquote separation of church and state. Well, what we've just simply drifted more towards is secularism. And a, you know, with the attempt of being politically correct and, and not choosing one quote-unquote religion over another, we've tried to just be so secular. But you know what? When you elevate man to be the preeminent center of decision-making and everything else, guess what? You've just, tra- you've just traded one religion for another. You've just traded... I'm having trouble saying that. You've just traded a faith that is based on God to a faith that is based on man, which is just secular humanism. So guess what? That presents all kinds of other problems as well because it's, it's almost impossible to be neutral. So even though there were a lot of things that were done that were tragic, especially how they persecuted. I mean, William Laud, for instance, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, I said, let's see, where's the... Uh, uh, I underlined it here. Um, yeah, in, on page 3. By the way, some of yours, I know, uh, you have just all on one side. Some of you have the, the type on both sides. And the reason was... Because um, when I showed up today, I told my secretary that I needed 300 copies. Uh, she's, you know, fairly new, did not realize how large this class was. And she figured that Scott had to have made another mental error. And it really meant 30 copies. So, uh, so I was uh, running around making another 270 copies for you all. So I go the short route. You know, it's typing on both, you know. Uh, so that's why some of yours are different. But anyways, on, it's still on page three, whichever one, however yours is, is formatted, uh, where he says that uh, William Laud oversaw the arrest, torture, and even execution of many Puritans. I mean, that means, you know, we, we think back, and, and I'm going to reference where I was with you the last when we thought back to uh, Zwingli, you know. I mean, they did it then too. You know, they would uh, persecute the Catholics or they persecute the Anabaptists and so forth. So... Christianity, and we have to, to, to accept the responsibility and, and accept uh, what uh, is true of us, is that we've done a lot of horrible, horrible things, quote, in the name of God. However, it doesn't get any better when you try to shove God out of it either. And so, therefore, there's a lot of horrible things that are being done now in an effort to not even acknowledge God. And uh, that remains the challenge that human beings have in living out our lives under the grace and the guidance and the leading of the one true God of the universe. And so uh, this is, you know, as you think back, it's interesting that in that government they had a lot of Puritans in the parliament. And so you got the Puritans, the, the, the Calvinists in parliament, you got the king who has all kinds of personal problems, obviously. But now he's kind of maybe waffling a little bit to try to get a little support over there from Spain, from, 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 the, from the Catholics, the Roman Catholicism. You've got an archbishop who is also key in the Church of England that drifts more towards Arminianism. So you've got a complicated, not only spiritual and religious situation, but also a, a complicated political situation. And guess what? 
Everybody's going to carve out their little piece of the, of the pie. Now, I would love to be able to say that Baptists are very different. But we're not. In fact, I hold in my hand two separate uh, issues, if you will, of the Baptist faith and message. Now, we don't call them a creed. We do not have a creed. Baptists do not have a creed. Don't ever make that mistake of saying that you, as a Baptist, follow a creed. We don't follow creeds. Uh, we believe in the priesthood of the believer, and therefore everyone stands on his own before God, and uh, the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and of course we've totally distorted what the priesthood of the believer really is, but nevertheless, that's okay. Um, but we don't follow creeds. In other words, we don't have anyone that tells us what we're going to believe because the Word of God is our sole authority, which is really great. When we're Spirit-led, when we're Spirit-filled, that is the best way it works. When we're not, that doesn't work either. Okay? So, in 1963, we had the Baptist Faith and Message, which, of course, was, uh, we had not had another confession since 1925, which was the Hampshire Confession. So, uh, the, the uh, uh, convention, the following year, this was issued in 1962, or, or commissioned in 1962, 1962. Herschel Hobbs, who was the pastor of, the, uh, of a Baptist, huge Baptist church in Oklahoma was the uh, chairman of the committee, great statesman, great man of God. And then they were going to produce this document in Kansas City the following year, which was going to be 1963. And so this is what they came uh, up with. And uh, the Baptist faith and message, some key points here says that uh, they, or this was their charge, that they constitute a consensus of opinions of some Baptists today, you got to listen carefully to the language, some Baptist, uh, um, opinion of some Baptist body, large or small, for the general instruction and guidance of our own people and others concerning those articles of the Christian faith which are most surely held among us. They are not intended to add anything to the simple conditions of salvation revealed in the New Testament such as repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Number two, that we do not regard them as complete statements of our faith, having any quality or finality or infallibility. As in the past, so in the future, Baptists should hold themselves free to revise their statements of faith as many seem to them wise and expedient at any time. Number three, that any group of Baptists large or small, have the inherent right to draw up for themselves and publish to the world a confession of their faith whenever they, think, they may think it advisable to do so. Number four, that the sole authority for faith and practice among Baptists is the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Confessions are only guides in interpretation, having no authority over the consensus. I'm sorry, sorry, no authority over conscience. Should have brought my glasses. Number five, that they are statements of religious convictions drawn up from the Scriptures and are not to be used to hamper freedom of thought or investigation in other realms of life. And then it goes on and says a few more things. But those are the five basic principles that they were to follow in producing the Baptist faith and message. So this is what we had, that kind of put into words what most Baptists believe 
about certain doctrines. Those doctrines would be the Scriptures, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, along with replete with many, many scriptural references, uh, solidly scriptural. Man, salvation, uh, God's purpose of grace, the church, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, uh, the Lord's Day, the kingdom, last things. By the way, they don't get into whether it's going to be premillennial, predis- you know, predisposed or predispositional, I don't know, uh, premillennial or amillennial. Or, what's interesting is that uh, Herschel Hobbes was actually amillennial, and he was the chairman of the committee. And so they didn't get into all of that. They just basically said, Jesus is going to come back one day. And then they gave scripture reference. So they didn't break it down that much. Evangelism and missions, education, stewardship, cooperation, how we cooperate, the Christian and social order, peace and war, religious liberty. And that's where they stopped. So that's what we had from uh, all uh, since uh, 1963. But then in 2000, we had new folks in places of authority, and they said, you know what? We haven't had a Baptist Faith and Message update since 1963. It's time to have an updated version of the Baptist Faith and Message. Well, those were fighting words, folks, among Baptists. And really, there were no... In fact, they had the same five principles that guided the process as the 1963 version did. But interestingly enough, they added one additional... Uh, uh, segment of it, and that was on the family. And that caused all kinds of controversy within Southern Baptists. It was almost kind of like one more nail in the coffin because we were already fighting and we were already headed our separate ways anyway. It's just interesting that all these years later, we have, in a sense, a confession, which is the Baptist faith and message, and we'll fight over it as well. And whenever it's refined, just like the Presbyterians did because the, I mean, the Westminster Confession was basically the basis for the Presbyterian denomination or the Presbyterian beliefs. And, and, uh, um, and it would be revised and there would be different, uh, uh, um, different uh, versions of it, very minor changes, but still there would be different versions. And ultimately you would have different Presbyterian bodies that didn't agree over some of the changes that were made and so then they would go a different path. And that's why the, ba- the Presbyterians are very much like Baptists where there's not just Southern Baptists and there's not just American Baptists or Northern Baptists, and all, but there's a whole, it's Heinz 57 uh, of Baptists and just like in other denominations as well. So, let's skip on down here. Uh, a key um, paragraph on page 3, kind of right there in the middle, kind of stands alone. During these religious turbulent, religiously turbulent times, many British citizens who wanted religious freedom found it by leaving. But the place to go was no longer Geneva. True religious freedom was to be found in the British settlements so far from the crown that religious oversight from England was ineffective. These folks immigrated to the New World, and that was America. So you see where our roots, obviously. We knew that there were those, the Puritans and the Pilgrims came over from England, but nevertheless, we see that there was a lot more that tied us to the motherland uh, in other respects. Um, William Laud and Charles, who was the son of James, the last paragraph there, were not satisfied with just tackling the English uh, for their religious reform. So they went to Scotland to eliminate the Calvinist, or the Calvinistic, Calvinist Presbyterian practices and bring the Scottish church into alignment with the church in England. Well, they picked 
picked on the wrong folks to fight there, as you'll see in the subsequent paragraphs there, uh, because they basically just said, uh, get out of here. And so they uh, voted out the bishops, and they said, go home. And see, the problem they had is that Charles did not have a parliament in effect because the king could... The one of the powers that the king had, he could not make all the laws. Parliament made the laws, but he could disband Parliament until he called them back into session. Well, Parliament was kind of on a hiatus at this time. Well, when he fought this war, guess what? He started running out of money. Well, only Parliament could then... Uh, 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 what's that? Yeah, could, that's right. Only Parliament could tax the people and bring back the funds. Well, guess what Parliament was made up of? Yeah, that's right. Calvinists. Well, who were in Scotland? So the king had a mess on his hands, right? So he wasn't going to get his way. So basically, uh, he shouldn't have started that fight. And I love this paragraph right here. Now, if we consider how upset some of our folks, maybe even us, get over innovations in church service, we might still raise an eyebrow when we hear of the first service in Edinburgh, Scotland, where the prayer book stripped the congregants of extemporaneous prayer. The year was 1637, and the first reading, a woman named Jenny Geddes stood up, grabbed her footstool, and threw it at the reader in St. Giles Cathedral. Geddes became a national hero. How about that? Man, talk about lively worship services, right? Yeah. Boy, you're going to take away extemporaneous prayer? You're going to take away our ability just to pray from our hearts before God? Uh, because it was all uh, uh, it was all written out in the prayer book, you know that was a major thing. That was a that was a fighting issue, and they were not going to stand for it. It's interesting because um, uh, Becky Riddle, I was so honored, uh, and uh, and Patricia Harless as well. Uh, w- uh, they had a, uh, an opportunity because they get to choose ministers, uh, our representatives in Austin, to come and and open up the session in prayer. And uh, so because you have two of them in your class, two representatives, which are doubly blessed, uh, one said, well, good, I'll ask Scott and you ask David Fleming. So on subsequent months, uh, we had two representatives, two preachers from Champion Force Baptist Church that opened up the prayer uh, or, or, or voiced the prayer. Anyways, uh, mine was in April. And so I went on up there. And of course, we were just in awe. I got to take my whole family up there. And uh, it was just so neat. We're driving up. We, we left early that Friday morning. And we're flying up to Austin. That's, again, uh, another reason why I don't have a fish on the back of my, um, my van. But anyways... Um, <laughs> But uh, anyway, so we're flying up, left early in the morning, and we're getting up there, and we're all going up there, and we're so excited, and you know, want to make sure we have our directions and all. And I said, "Hey, Christy, read that letter one more time, you know, about from the sergeant of arms, you know, the instructions of what I need to follow and so forth." You know, of course, he goes and he says, "You know, don't get into political issues, don't get into, you know, uh, uh, controversial issues in your prayer and so forth and all." He says, "And uh, please give a copy of your prayer to the secretary as you uh, enter in on the right hand side, whatever." I went. A copy of the prayer. I said, I didn't type out a prayer. I thought I was just going to get up there and pray. I'm a Baptist. Heavens to Betsy. I don't type out my prayers. I mean, I've done weddings with those Episcopalians, you know. I don't do that. They read it out of a book. I do it from the heart, you know. And all that. I'm like, what am I going to do now? You know, it's got to go. And he says, because it'll go into the official record and so forth. So anyways, we're, we're going in there. It's like, we're going to be up there in about 20 minutes. I run into Becky's office. I said, hey, great to see you all. Oh, this is wonderful. Do you have a computer? You know, and so I went over and sat in the computer. And I'm trying to think, okay, Heavenly Father. <laughs> Lord, we thank you. 
You know, and they're carrying on. She's showing the kids all around the office and all. And I'm trying to, you know, listen like that. And I'm, I mean, so mechanical. And I can't concentrate. I'm like, dear Lord, we just pray. No, that doesn't sound good, you know. And I'm working on this. And it just feels so weird, you know. By the way, my little, I was joking about the Episcopalians, okay? You know, I've done a wedding with them. And it, it, like I said, it's just really interesting. That's all I meant by it, okay? It was just interesting. I love Episcopalians. So, especially today, the Anglican Church, come on, the Episcopalians. So I didn't mean to offend anybody. Okay. So anyways, um, so I go in there. So I finally punch this thing out and I've got a copy of it. I'm like, this is so weird. And then I'm thinking, okay, now I don't have this memorized. What am I going to do? Because I don't want to pray something different than what's going to be in the official uh, records, you know? So anyways, I go up there and I figure, well, I guess I'm going to have to pray this. And I got this big old thing, this huge thing right there, and it's about this high, you know. And I walk in there, and there's no way I'm going to be able to fool you. And I was like, okay, can I remember this? You know, I have my eyes closed. Can I, you know, you know, I can't remember. What was that second line? So I figured, I'm just going to have to read this. So I get in there and say, let's bow our heads in prayer. So I'm hoping. But then I realize there's a camera that's on there. And it's going to see everything. So the camera. So I try to tip my head as much as I can. Like this to make it look like my head's bowed. And I'm reading my prayer. And I'm just praying that I don't stumble over a word or something like this. And then when I finish. And I just thought, that was so mechanical. It just, it, I could not hardly stand it, you know. But that's because of how I've been raised. It's traditional. And so when I was reading this paragraph, I thought, you know what? That probably been, would have been a real thing for me. I, I don't think I would have thrown my footstool, but still, I'd probably said, no, 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 no. You know, if you've been raised where you say, you know, you close and you pray from the heart. You pray from the heart. But you know what? What I had to finally come to a peace in my own heart about it, I said, you know what? When I was sitting there at the computer, I was praying. Because I was putting down on paper what I was asking God to do. And I guess what made it really realistic is I had to go back and delete, you know, several times and add and redo and all like this. But I was asking God and I was being very, not careful about my wording, but I was being very intentional about what I was asking Him for. I was asking Him for His blessings on those men and women that represent us. I was asking for His, his Spirit to prevail in all the things that they would be discussing that day, that some would be important things, some would not be important things. I prayed for His, His power to, to move them to do the things that are truly just rather than politically expedient. And so it was very intentional about... And so when I prayed it, yes, it was a prayer prayed twice, but... It was still a prayer to the God in heaven that he would move. It's just, again, some of the things of what we feel most comfortable with and how we get uh, used to certain things. Well, let's skip on down to the actual uh, confession. You'll see down there on the bottom of page 4 that from 1643 to 1646, while England was fighting a civil war, the Westminster Assembly met at Westminster Abbey to write the Westminster Standards. And um, these were great Calvinist scholars, churchmen, theologians from throughout England and Scotland. Through their meeting, uh, meetings with Parliament, 
So in other words, they sought Parliament's input on this, but this was not a, a government document. Um, through their meetings with Parliament and their internal conferences, they prepared and passed what was labeled the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then they prepared a large and shorter catechisms as well as the Directory of Worship. Now down there in the next paragraph, the document reflects the strong Calvinistic doctrine in uh, uh, opposition to the Arminian theology embraced by many Anglicans at that time. Today's Presbyterian Church uh, evidences several historical schisms since the, or by evidence by the several schisms in the 1600s that have resulted in some modifying the confessions or confessions, some disavowing it and others wholeheartedly following it. Now, uh, one of the things I love about Mark's documents is that uh, are the footnotes. And so skip down and look at the footnote there at the bottom. Footnote number four. American Presbyterians traced their roots to British colonization in the 1600s. In 1706, a number of Presbyterian churches united to form the first American Presbytery. By 1716, the first synod met in Philadelphia. The synod met again in Philadelphia in 1729 and passed a requirement that all ministers declare an approval of the Westminster Confession as a doctrinal statement. Now, seminary professors in Southern Baptist life, that was another thing that caused a lot of controversy, is they have to sign the Baptist faith and message to be able to teach there. Uh, we don't have to sign this to be a member of the, cha- uh, uh, of the church, and you didn't have to sign that to be a member of Champion Force Baptist Church. The local church is a whole different uh, uh, ballgame. But as far as denominational entities where the majority of churches, a consensus, even though different churches would probably have uh, disagreements with certain things in the Baptist faith and message, especially the 2000 version, the, the individual churches are, are not ruled necessarily by this, but they follow in principle this. But the institutions that are uh, the result of the, ch- of the separate churches coming together and supporting, those being our six Baptist seminaries, our uh, uh, international missionaries, our North American missionaries, and so forth. In other words, denominational employees, they have to sign the Baptist faith and message. Some didn't like that, and some resigned over that. Personally, I've not really ever figured out what their real issue is. I mean, uh, because in essence what you're saying is, as a denominational employee, I promise to abide by the majority confession of most Southern Baptist churches. What's the issue? What's the problem with that? But, you know, we, we human beings, we can create problems out of that. So anyways, they were to, uh, they were to declare approval of the Westminster Confession as a doctoral statement. Uh, come on down there uh, a few sentences. It also took out the uh, reference of the Pope as the Antichrist. That was probably a nice thing to do. In 1903, the Northern Presbyterian Churches, the Presbyterian Church of the United States, or PCUSA, revised the confession further to soften the strong Calvinism. The Southern Presbyterian Church, or the PCUS, broke off from the PCUSA over these changes. In 1910, the PCUSA conflicts over other aspects of the confession ultimately led to another division over issues. As late as 1973, and this would be the denomination that uh, D. James Kennedy is a part of, his Presbyterian church, is a member of the Presbyterian Church in America formed over efforts to embrace greater portions of the original Westminster Confession. So you see the pendulum uh, swings back you know, to the original documents that this is what we believe. So uh, 
let's run through some of the things here in the confession. I love what it says right here. And, and, and I, I just want to read this because I think the language is just so beautiful. And, and you know what? If we would pray prayers, not like we just memorized it and wrote it all down, but if we just prayed prayers like this, uh, I believe God would just be so thrilled that we were, a, that we were being intentional in, in at least making human attempts led by the Holy Spirit to acknowledge how great and magnificent and amazing and far above us He really is. The language is just beautiful. I mean, our Baptist faith and message, it kind of basically tells what we believe, and it's good, it's adequate. But the language is nowhere near what this uh, Westminster Confession... Listen to this. Just read along with me. Let's just, uh, I just want to read this out loud. Uh, when it's talking about uh, a, a God, when it's talking about the person of God, look at this. There is but only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts, parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most religious will, for His own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him and withal most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself and is alone in and unto Himself all sufficient not standing in need of any creatures which He has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them, do, uh, to do by them and for them, or upon them whatsoever Himself pleases. Man! You know what? That's not literally quoting Scripture, but I'd like for you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 13 through 18. Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 13 through 18. For He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. He is, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together." He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. Isn't that beautiful? That's Scripture. Isn't it wonderful that they wrote a document to say this is what we believe? And the language sounds just like Scripture. And they incorporated all that about God's sovereignty and His, and His omniscience and His omnip omnipotence 
and, and His omnipresence and the fact that He created all things for Him. And He has power over all things. And He will not allow sin to go unpunished, but yet He's merciful and He's gracious and He's kind. I mean, it's just a beautiful document. In fact, uh, there's really not anything in here, really, because it's so heavily based on Scripture that you and I would disagree with. Because if you heard the message of, of uh, Pastor Fleming today, it, you'll see is that you know, the whole issue of predestination and, and, and uh, free will uh, really doesn't need to be an issue. You know, like he said, I, I say this too. Somebody says, Scott, do you believe in predestination? I said, yes, I do. Oh, so you're a Calvinist. No, I'm not. I follow the Lord. I don't want a guy's name attached to me. I don't want, you know, that's just my personal opinion. I'm not faulting you if you do, but, you know. And I don't mean to sound like one of those guys that the Apostle Paul was talking about, saying, you know, some of are of Cephas and some are of Apollos and some are of the Lord. You know, like, oh, he's one of those that is real high-minded. And he says, oh, I follow Jesus. You know, I only take Jesus' name. I'm not saying it that way. I'm just simply saying that I don't follow a tenet that, that a man produced because if it's not out of Scripture, then I don't want to follow it. If it is, that's fine. He, that attached his name to it. But, uh, so someone said, do you believe in predestination? Absolutely, yes. How can you, how can you believe that God is all-powerful, all-present, and all-knowing, and not believe that He predestines things? Of course He does. He doesn't take educated guesses. He, he, he knows. He knows. He knows exactly how it's going to turn out. However, oh, so you're Calvinist. No, I'm not. Well, you just said that you believe in predestination. Absolutely. Yes, I do. Well, do, do you also believe in free will? Absolutely. Well, wait a minute. You can't have two. Oh, you can have two. It makes perfect sense in God's mind. Because that's why He had what the, in Ephesians 1, 4, where He chose you, He predestined you and me unto salvation. But He also is the same God that said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish i.e., free will. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. So therefore, the opposite is assumed. If you don't do those things, then you are not saved. So God completely understands predestined and free will. Just because we quarrel over that is not His problem. I mean, he, well, yeah, it is. Yeah, because we're his kids. But he's got to work through us. But, you know, but we listen to the Holy Spirit and we realize that, wait a minute, both are true. But then again, how do you, how do you explain God? How do you explain God? I can't explain that. How do you explain the virgin birth? I believe it. Can you, I, I can't explain it. You see, it's not for us to explain. It's for us to just believe God's word and follow accordingly. You know, if, um, if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and, uh, and, and, and you believe that your, your name is written in the book of life and you're going to be in heaven one day in that place that He has prepared for you, then don't sit around worrying about predestination because it's settled. What are you doing? You know, And to try to convince somebody else that they are of the elect when the person's already telling you, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. And then to then break that down to somehow become a fruit inspector because now you're like, well, I'm going to watch and see. 
if you really are one of the elect. That is not your job. That is not our job to do that. Because you know what? Even those who are Calvinists, hardcore Calvinists, five-point Calvinists, will say that we can all experience periods of rebellion and periods of backsliding, if you will. Why? Because we still contend with the flesh. We still contend with the flesh. Anyways, got off on that. Now, let's go to... Uh, uh, let's uh, look at... Uh, uh, I'm going to skip that. So let's go to the next one, um, which would be number two, the paragraph at the bottom of page six, when it's talking about the doctrine of the fall of man. Um, It says, By this sin they fell from the original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all parts and the faculties of soul and body, they being rooted uh, the root of all mankind and the guilt of this sin was imputed. You know, uh, Scripture talks about that Jesus Christ was the second Adam. In the first Adam, we all fell. The second Adam was the one that provided salvation. We see in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. So again, they base it totally on Scripture and it speaks to our sinful condition and our need for salvation. Come on down to the issue of justification or salvation before God. Uh, On this issue, that uh, next paragraph, justification, salvation before God, one can readily perceive the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, but in a Calvinist sense of election. Chapter 11 reads, Those whom God effectually calls, He also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their, their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, for by Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and sanctification or satisfaction, satisfaction of Christ. Unto them they receiving and resting on Him and His righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Now, does that bring to mind a particular verse? Especially that last sentence. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, in that not of yourselves, it is a free gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Now, Okay, we get caught up on, 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 on election or justific- justification. Uh, and um, and we, we struggle with all that. But you know what? Once again, what is the best thing for us to do? Well, let's go back to God's Word. Let's not fight battles talking about tulip. Let's not sit around and say, well, yeah, but did he, did he actually die for the elect on the cross? Or was it just the elect that he died for and all that sort of thing? You see, again, the bottom line is, folks, we'll never be able to know that. Let's just go and stick with what Scripture says and let's make a quick, quick run through just the book of John. Let's start with John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I'm going to read this very quickly because I know we've run out of time. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, the, and then we'll close it down. But John chapter 6. By the way, John, the Gospel of John is unique. It's not one of the synoptic Gospels. The synoptic Gospels are the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called uh, the synoptic Gospels because they give a synopsis of the life of Christ. John's Gospel is very different because he comes at it more focusing on the divinity of Christ. It's not just a, 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 a description of his life. And so he gets into much deeper theological issues 
uh, John does. But it's a great book and some very key scriptures uh, to, to what we uh, believe and what we hold. John chapter 6, verse 44. Okay? We're on the right page here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. So, you can fight with a Calvinist if you want to, but you have a whole other issue when you fight with Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, and what did Jesus clearly say? Nobody can get saved unless the Father starts the process. Nobody can get saved unless the Father draws him to himself. Now, the good news is nothing's going to thwart that, you know, that, that effort and that work. But it all starts with the Father. And so the opposite is true. If the Father doesn't begin to draw someone to Himself, there's no way. They are not going to be able to acquiesce intellectually into heaven. They're not going to be able to ascend, make an, an intellectual ascent into heaven by just coming to that belief in Jesus Christ on their own. It takes the work of God. That's what Jesus said. I'm not going to argue with you. That's what he said. Look at uh, chapter 17. Chapter 17. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One more in there. Uh, chapter 10 on your way to 17. Chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Just those few few verses right there are just absolutely packed with insights into who God is. And he just basically says, look, whoever the Father gives me, I am not going to lose anyone. They are in my hand. And I'm in the Father's hand. And the Father and I are one. There's, there, there's the, the oneness uh, of, uh, or the unity within the Trinity right there with the Son and the Father. And he says, but, but the Father has given them to me. And you know what it also says is that, you know, rather, I never tell anybody. I've had people come and sit in my office and say, Scott, I'm, I'm doubting my salvation. I, I just want to make sure. And I say, okay, well, let's go. And what I do every time is I just take them. I, most of the time what I do is I either take them to these scriptures or I take them to uh, the Roman Road, you know, go through the Roman, Roman Road, and I let them read it. And then I say, now, do you believe that? Yes, I do. I do believe that. Have you done this in your life? Yes. Yes, I have. Then I said, well, then, based on God's Word, what does it say about your relation with it? What? It, it, it says, I, I guess I'm a Christian. You, you guess you're a Christian? Yeah. Listen, if, if it's not like that, then when we all get to heaven and God's jerked the rug out from under us, we can all be a little ticked off. Well, wait a minute. Now, this is what you told me to do. If this is not what you meant, then why don't you... Well, you know, that would be a, you know, a, a terrible joke to play on us, Right? No, His Word tells us what we need to know. And if that's what His Word says is required for a personal relationship with Him, have you done this? Yes. Do you believe that? Yes. Then what does God's Word say about your relationship with Him? I never tell anybody, you're saved. You're saved. Oh, come on. Lighten up on yourself. I never tell anybody that. I take them to God's Word and say, what does it say about you? If you have done that, you're the only one. You and God are the only one that knows in your heart of hearts if that has actually taken place in your life. 
But based on what God's Word says, what does it say about you and your relationship with Him? Now let's go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Let's say, well, what is eternal life? Well, why don't we see what Jesus says is eternal life? Okay? And he says right in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So he gives a pretty straightforward, clear explanation. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you know God. That you know God and you know me. And you have a relationship with Him. So that's eternal life. Then now look at verse 12. While I, Now this is the high priestly prayer. He is, he is praying to the Father, praying about His disciples, but then also those who would follow after His disciples. While I was with them, I was keeping them in Thy name. Who's doing the work of keeping them saved and in, in the name of the Father? Jesus. He's our intercessor. He's our, 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 uh, our mediator. He's the one, that, our advocate, if you will. Um, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now come over in, in uh, chapter 18, just turn the page. And he says in verse 9, Jesus once again saying, Of those whom thou hast given me, I lost not one. Folks, listen, we... Arminians and Calvinists will fight about eternal security and all that sort of thing. And I don't know why we fight those battles. I honestly don't. I don't want to spend the time and energy on that. I just want to go to God's Word and say, and, 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 and the Bible says what? That nobody's going to get saved unless the Father begins the process and draws them to Himself. And also, once somebody is truly born again and follows the definition of eternal life, what Jesus laid out in Scripture then guess what? I can't be lost because I'm no match for Him. And He's going to hold on to me, even in my times of failure, even in my times of rebellion. Listen, I did not do anything to get saved. I can't do anything to stay saved. It is simply the grace and the mercy of God. And then also when you consider in Romans chapter 8, where it says that nothing can remove us from the love of God. Well, that, that includes any created thing, the Apostle Paul says. Well, guess what? We are created, and we fall into that category, and so nothing can remove us from the love of God. Yeah, oh, yeah, but that's talking about the love of God. Just like John three sixteen, God so loved the world, but it didn't mean everybody was saved. No, no, listen. You don't experience the love of God unless you're in relationship with God. So nothing can remove you from His hand. Now, let's quickly go to the points... Uh, for home, and you can you have the other uh, issues. I'm skipping several things here, and the points uh, one and two. God has always worked His revelation and message through events in history. God was quick to use foreign powers to invade Israel when the Jews needed motivation and direction. In fact, many of the Old Testament books of prophecies were directly linked to the threats and invasions of foreign powers. It should come as no surprise that in uh, post-biblical history, God has continued to work in secular events, weaving threads of His church into a fabric we live in today. You know, what's so interesting is that uh, our students are going to go June the 3rd, or July 3rd, to England. And you know, they're actually going to be able to go into the schools and give their testimonies. Now, England is very dark spiritually now. That was the mission-sending center of the world at one time, but it is very dark. 
But the reason why they're able to go into the schools is because it's treated as with all religions. They can go in and give their testimonies and the students are going to listen to it. Isn't that ironic that the, America came into being because those left England because of religious persecution and came to America, we would have freedom of faith, freedom of religion, if you will. But we cannot do in our schools what they can do over there in their schools. They're dark. We're holding on by a thread. Okay? But you know what? Through it all, no matter what, through it all, God continues to work. And what, what uh, uh, Mark wanted to remind us of is even when we look back in history, and even in this case with the Westminster, uh, the Westminster Confession, it, was, uh, it came about out of much turbulence and a lot of ungodly things that were done, but yet a, a truly wonderful document was produced that was greatly used by God. And he continues, even when things look so dark and you're thinking, God, have you turned your head? God, have, are, are, have you been paying attention? Oh, yes, he is. And he uses a myriad of things to motivate and get his people off center to live out an active faith in Christ. Number two, God is beyond our comprehension, but to spend time in contemplation of His grandeur provides a source not only of worship, but strength in the Christian walk. And, and it goes on to say some other great things about uh, Isaiah 6 and, and his response to the Lord. What I want to say off of that right there is that uh, Mark has given you a wonderful lesson on the Westminster Confession. Now, that is primarily a Presbyterian document. But I would encourage you to read it. Why? We already looked at part of it. How it's deeply rooted in Scripture. And listen, in our busy lives, we need to take time to meditate on God and His truths. And let me tell you, I don't think it would be harmful whatsoever to just even take that paragraph that we read that was rooted in Scripture, talking about the character and the the person of God, to even just use that in your quiet time. Yeah, you're using a Presbyterian document, but who cares? You know, God has used that and to meditate on that because we've got to be diligent to carve out those times in our lives where we can meditate on how awesome and truly incomprehensible He is. But then that's what makes it even more sweet, the fact that He would allow us to join Him in His work. That's what's so amazing to me. Hey, thank you all so much. I went long. Let me close in prayer. Father God, we just thank you again for this lesson that Mark uh, produced for us. We thank you, Lord, for the things that you have done through people, ordinary people in history. And you've accomplished some amazing things uh, that, that were foundational in not only cultures, but even whole nations And you use ordinary people. And Lord, we just believe that as we come here today that you can use us. You know, you have every hair on our heads numbered. You know us intimately. You created us. You knit us together in our mother's womb. And we are not here by accident. And Lord, we have a purpose. And Lord, we pray as we surrender ourselves to you, the great God that you are, that you would work mightily through our lives and let us be used to make a difference in your kingdom. Go with us as we leave this place today, constantly mindful of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.